Hello, and welcome to Embodying Change, a podcast about cultivating care and compassion in aid and development. I'm Melissa Patati, and this podcast is part of an initiative I'm working on with the CHS Alliance. Our work looks at the intersections between mental health, people management, and organizational culture using the lens of care and compassion. Today, I talk with Nasser Haghamet, who recently finished a five-year stint as the CEO of Islamic Relief Worldwide. I interviewed him and other leaders at the end of last year for the Leading Well project carried out for ICFA and the CHS Alliance. I really appreciated his candor in giving concrete examples of the stress that can come up for leaders who are leading aid organizations in stressful circumstances. And I also appreciated some of the ideas he had about how we can cultivate care for ourselves and each other going forward. We plan to weave some of the ideas coming out of these conversations into a global gathering that will take place virtually this year on May 20 and 21st. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I would like to welcome to the podcast, Nasser Haghamed. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. And how are you, Melissa? I'm great, uh, as great as I can be given the circumstances. And I was so grateful to talk with you at the end of last year when you were the CEO of Islamic Relief Worldwide. Uh, We talked about, from leadership perspectives, some of the issues that are being faced with regard to staff well-being and supportive organizational cultures. And I know now you've moved on to a new phase in your career. So I'd love just to start the podcast by checking in with you. How are you doing? What are you doing these days? I left my job as the CEO of Islamic Life Worldwide end of January, and I took a month off resting, spending time with family, even though not much to do outside, but inside. Uh, and I've got a um, um, sick mom, so I've been spending time with her, uh, looking after her. Um, and then beginning of this month, basically beginning of March, um, I've started being active, uh, providing consultancy services using my company AIC Limited, specializing in um, specialty governance and risk management. And I am now in the process of um, getting trained to be a qualified executive coach, which is a six month course. Mm-hmm. Looking forward for my first class, which is going to be end of this month. The, in about six months time, um, I'll be able to say I'm a qualified executive coach and an ex-CEO and provide um, sort of executive coaching to uh, CEOs and directors to make sure they are effective Mm -hmm. and they are dealing with challenges that they face. Um, I'll be doing both coaching and mentoring because I have quite um, a wealth of experience in management and leadership, 27 years of experience. So I would like to um, include that as part of my coaching and mentoring support. I chose this area to be honest because what I found is sometimes we take leaders to three days, five days or 10 days training on leadership and theories and, and presenting different models and exercises. And then they go back and we expect them to be effective. What we're doing actually is that when you take them out and give them training, it's like taking them out from muddy water into clean water. And there are a lot of aha moments when you're training them mm-hmm. because they're not firefighting, they're in the clean water, they can see everything how it's supposed to be done. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden, after the one or two weeks training, you send them back to the muddy water, but you're not there anymore to help them. But theory and practice 
are always different mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and the way you apply them sometimes are you know have to be different uh, in depending on the context so what i want to do is that whilst providing leadership training or guiding people what sort of leadership training they need to do or readings they do mm -hmm. but is also you know taking them by hand every month every couple of weeks whenever mm -hmm. they need that support what are the sort of challenges you're facing what are your goals Mm -hmm. How can we help you mm -hmm. and lead them through that process? So another six months to 12 months coaching mm -hmm. plus training, I think, makes them effective leaders. Mm -hmm. But having just only one or two weeks um, leadership training doesn't add much value. So that's my point of view anyway. So that's what I want to do. Excellent. So I want to pick up on the point you raised about theory and practice. Uh, something that I've been really interested in is something called systems thinking, mm -hmm. where we look at a lot of the challenges we have in a context where we are interdependent. Yeah. So let's say, let's say we're in a humanitarian organization and we're trying to get something done, but our colleagues aren't providing the support that we want. Yeah. We could be tempted to blame them for not yeah. falling through. But if we take a systems approach, we might see that there's something wrong with the system that sets us up to fail or has created extra stress or tension in how we work together. We can look at it within an organization. We can look at it as a, a broader sector, how we operate with partners. And when I interviewed you for the Leading Well report, mm -hmm. there are five systems-related stressors. So I want to, if you don't mind, just run you through them and see what you think. Okay. Resonates from your experience as a CEO, yeah. uh, Bear. Mm -hmm. The number uh, one system-related stressor is that we operate in very disrupted contexts where there's, for example, there's been a lot of war, there've been a lot of natural disasters. So just by being in these contexts, there's some stress associated. We're working with people who may have been subjected to intergenerational trauma. So number one is the context being stressful. Number two is that we might unknowingly have absorbed oppressive systems, how they work. So for example, one person I spoke with talked about in his context, there's a colonial legacy and that somehow might impact how you work with people you see as in a hierarchy. Um, the number three issue that was creating stress was competition. This idea that as an organization, we need to get more resources. We're competing with other similar organization. We need to increase our market share. Number four stressor was uh, this idea of paperwork or bureaucracy or compliance requirements. Yeah. There's this kind of proliferation in our sector and it becomes overwhelming to be able to comply with so many different demands on a system. And the number five stressor was more about the people that are attracted to international assistance or support or aid or development, really wanting to do good work and being prone to overextending themselves or sacrificing their well-being. And this idea of overexertion creates stress. So that's a lot of information I just put yeah. out at you. Um, but what sticks with you? What seems from your experience to make the most uh, resonating points? Right. I think the problem is in number one and number five. The first one is the context in terms of working in conflict zones and challenges and this dynamic change that have uh, that happened. 
but obviously the number five is with the people we work and uh, the different circumstances. And I think it's very important that with number one, everybody knows it and everybody agrees. Number five, that what we don't realize as leaders, what is the emotional status of the individuals you are dealing with? What is your relationship with them? What is your view of them? Mm -hmm. Now, because what have, we all have perceptions, uh, we have experience, good or bad, with certain individuals and with groups and teams. But when you are, as a leader, you're trying to make a decision, how much that is influenced to being very objective? Mm -hmm. Now, that is where I think leaders need help to be very objective because it's just basically, it doesn't mean because the idea or the challenge or the question came from one individual or a group of people that you don't really stand seeing them or talking to them or you hate them. It doesn't mean it's wrong and might be the right thing to do, but you've got your own emotional status to deal with as well. So at this point, it is very, very important to help leaders to be objective and challenge them with questions. What is wrong with that idea, regardless where it comes from? Okay. And what is your problem if you adopt it? And what can go wrong? I think that is very important. And that is where I just to go back to what I was talking about, the coaching leaders mm -hmm. is very important because leaders are on day-to-day -day basis firefighting. Mm -hmm. That is the nature of the organizations, humanitarian organizations. Mm -hmm. Now, there are lack of resources and there are mm -hmm. huge demands. And then obviously when you're at the top, you feel lonely. Yes. If you're a CEO, what I was in the five years, you feel lonely. Not everyone gets the support of their chairs or board members, mm -hmm. okay? And the other colleagues that are your direct reports, they have their own um, uh, vested interest. Mm -hmm. They have their own challenges and weaknesses and strengths. You are left in the middle trying to deal with all these issues and you have your own, whether it's personal, family, or work-related problems. Mm -hmm. So it's quite important, the number five, that we also focus on it because the decisions leaders make is affected by their relationship with others as well as the context they're working with. Can you maybe talk a little yeah. bit more about that experience of firefighting, maybe for listeners who haven't been in a CEO role, just to yeah. gain a little bit more of a picture? Because I found a lot of people I've interviewed at a working level see the leader as kind of this powerful role and they have a lot of autonomy and can do a lot. Maybe they haven't been in that experience. Could you paint a picture for what it was like for you? Yeah, um, obviously being a CEO, first of all, you are the go-to person when a problem occurs in the organization and the director or senior manager executive needs help. And also your board of trustees, when they feel they've heard of an issue the organization is facing, you're the go-to. Mm -hmm. So you're in the middle of people asking you what's going on. Now think about this like Islamic Leaf Worldwide, which is the largest independent Muslim organization working in over 45 countries. Mm -hmm. That means that in theory, round the clock, there's an Islamic Leaf office operating, doing work, day or time, 24 hours. Okay. Mm -hmm. And and each one of them might face their own challenges. And they have this relationship between the donor countries and the countries that are mainly bringing the funds for programs and you have a country offices and there are sometimes challenges expectations delays in reporting compliance mm -hmm. issues 
So at any single point when things don't go well at management level, it mm-hmm. is escalated. Mm-hmm. Now, but thinking about 45 countries, that means you could be dealing every day about one single country issue. Now, as you mentioned, we have the context to deal with as well, which yeah. is conflict zones, mm-hmm. um, the regulatory issues, mm-hmm. um, governments changing their regulations, their rules, sometimes having your staff arrested or your office being raided, mm-hmm. or sometimes even your office being bombed or the next door is being bombed. It happened with our Afghanistan office during the um, after September 11th. Our office was next to Al Jazeera office and Al Jazeera office was bombed by the United States. And just our, our stuff just survived. Now, last year, uh, when the Beirut explosion happened, mm-hmm. our office was slightly further away, so nothing happened, but mm-hmm. our country director's home um, glasses and windows all shattered. So yes, you can imagine this happens on a regular basis, you know, whether it's bombing, killing, it happened in Somalia, um, where um, a lorry exploded um, in uh, Mogadishu, and it was very close to our office. And everything was shattered, but no one was in the hurt in the office. Again, you have to call them, you have to check. And as a leader, they expect you, where is our CEO? Where are our leaders? So from time to time, you've got to make that single phone call to say, is everything okay? Mm-hmm. We'll talk about projects. We'll talk about how we respond to the crisis. Mm. The, the good thing is, um, I think Islamic Leaf and the many, uh, I think, NGOs are lucky. The directors and the, the country directors and staff are so brave. Mm-hmm. They actually manage to juggle with their personal issues and personal needs mm-hmm. and the needs of the communities we serve. Mm-hmm. So on that day, we were already getting this assessment after the explosion, mm-hmm. while the individuals were dealing with their own needs and challenges, including our country director. This is the sort of thing you do. And then the challenge could be the next day I get a phone call from USA. You haven't given us any proposals for the Beirut explosion. And um, we need to respond. But then you know you've got thousands, if not millions of people who want to support from the global north. And they're saying, Islamically, what are you doing on the ground? We want to help you. So you are in that situation. And it happens regularly. And as I said, it could be an explosion. It could be an office being raided or an office being bombed or next door being bombed. You have uh, staff being arrested for all sorts of allegations. Mm-hmm. And then you have to get them released. With all that, and you have to comply with your charity regulators in the UK, as an example, we mm-hmm. have now very strict reporting mechanism that you have to report any serious incident report the same day. Even if you don't have all information the charity commission wants to know, tell me what happened and then what are you going to do about it? And if you don't have enough information, you can do a follow-up. So you've got all these regulatory frameworks you have to deal with. Uh, Communications could be an issue sometimes, Mm -hmm. Uh, like what happened in Tigray and Ethiopia when the fighting with Albeck, okay. We could communicate with our team in Addis, but we could not communicate in our team in Tigray. Mm -hmm. So there was no communication, it was cut off. We want to know their well-being. We want to help and we want to go have an intervention. We want to have a program there. We want to help the people that are affected. Right. So that is almost a daily issue. What happens is obviously part of it is escalated to the directors and part of it escalated to CEO. Yes. But as a CEO, even if it is not escalated, when you watch the news, when you know something happening, you want to make sure your teams are safe on the ground, but you also want to make sure your teams are responding to the crisis. So you've got that sort of challenge. And then obviously you've got the speed of response. Sometimes could be slower, some could be faster. You're not happy, you're happy. 
This is let alone with any other day-to-day -day operational issues that you have to manage. There have been cases, I mean, is in um, October 2019, our the Birmingham airport, when we found out that our systems were hacked and um, the entire service was shut down. And I was about 30 minutes away on, from boarding uh, the plane to go to Ethiopia. I just walked out of the airport. I went to immigration. I said, I can't, and I need my luggage. Oh. Get it off the plane, okay? Oh. And it's quite, you know, because of security reasons, yes. the flight cannot take off because I'm not boarding. Right. Uh, and then I have to spend two, three days making sure that we have the system, the processes in terms of responding to the attack uh, are all in place and um, sending updates uh, to staff, holding a crisis management uh, meeting. Right. Um, and then three days later, I flew out to Ethiopia. But let me tell you about that time. Within a month, I had three concurrent crisis management meetings that I used to have because some of them have to do with reputational issues, some have to do with an ICT hacking. Yes. And there was a third one, now I can't remember, but I had three different crisis management wow. teams dealing with them and I have to chair each one of them and I have to report right. to our um, trustees and what is happening with each one of these issues. Wow. Now, depending on the nature of the crisis, you know, the team is also composed of different people. It could be finance and media and PR guys, or it could be like ICT and yes. legal uh, being involved. So- When you say ICT, can you say what that means for people who might oh, not- Oh, sorry, the information and communications technology, basically okay. your own IT system, uh, mm -hmm. when it was hacked. So we had to know, obviously we, uh, we had to talk to external companies to help us. Uh, we had to report it to the um, information commissioner here in the UK uh, oh. because of uh, potential data right. protection breach. Uh, thanks God there was no data that was leaked or stolen, uh -huh. but they still had to know. So ticking all these boxes and then even reporting it to the police was uh, an important part of the whole thing. And you need to make sure that you are remaining compliant and at the same time you have your day-to-day -day engagement. And right. what normally happens, to be honest, is that you clean your calendar. If you clear your calendar, you just mm -hmm. send an email or ask your PA executive mm -hmm. officer what that wise to do. Send an email, check my calendar, they have access to it, clear it. Mm -hmm. I'm not meeting anyone except yeah. on this issue. Yeah. And that happens on frequent basis. You're talking about at least once a month. Wow. So as you described that experience, I can totally see why you use the word firefighting. It's more like a, like in these locations around the world now that are constantly in fire mode. It used to be a rare thing, but now the intensity increases, the frequency yeah. increases. First of all, you have to think about so many different aspects when it comes to care how do you stay for yourself? And since you'll be coaching people, what advice do you have in addition to clearing your calendar and focusing in for that leader who's in the middle of it? How do they make sure that they're resourcing themselves to get through this? Yeah, I think there's two things that they have to do. One, be active in taking good break, mm -hmm. okay, away from these things and yeah. then try to think what is going on. Secondly, have someone who is not directly connected with your operations, like your coach, your mentor, or could be sometimes could be your um, chair of the board, to talk to them and just to say, this is what I'm doing. You know, um, they could be sounding board, okay? This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm facing. And this is what's happening. 
because what I found is that sometimes when I talk to somebody, sometimes mm-hmm. it's a relief itself. Yeah. And sometimes could they, cha- they challenge you mm-hmm. in terms of your actions, your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Are they on the right direction? Are they too quick, too slow, or you're reacting? So it's quite important. Even if you don't get, um, and you don't expect always an answer because you're not speaking to somebody who might be an expert in that area, mm-hmm. but are they sounding board and they can help you to think systematically? Okay, they can help you to uh, remove some of your biases. They might help you with your emotional issues. And they might say, listen, this is getting way too much. You need to do, get somebody else to help you with to do with these things. You need to take a break, yeah. uh, whatever it is. So it is quite important to have somebody who is not directly involved, obviously, because you want somebody to think almost like outside the box. Yes. To look, what you're doing is right, but you're being stressed. Mm-hmm. And you have to think how we do it. Now, if this happens quite regularly, what you want them to tell you is that, okay, then you might not have the capacity to manage this type of organization on your own. Mm-hmm. You need to look at your resources. Now, I was speaking to um, a colleague of mine or another peer, another CEO of a major international NGO, mm-hmm. and she had taken three months sabbatical leave and she had appointed a COO. Mm-hmm. And she basically said it was a great break. And she came back, obviously, she had already agreed with the team who would be responsible for what. Mm-hmm. And what she told me, and I think that resonates with what happened with me as well. Mm-hmm. And she said, this job is not a one-person job. That is very, very important when you are leading a very large international NGO. Yeah. How many of us do realize that this is not a one-person job? And if it is not, what is the solution? Yeah. Do you end up having two CEOs or a CEO and COO? And what are the delegation of authorities? What are the confusions? Will the team be able to um, accept that there are two leaders in the organization, one group reporting to one CEO or the other group reporting to CEO? Because they might think they've been relegated if they get them wrong. From next month, you're going to report to the CEO because I'm only going to have these portfolios, mm-hmm. and these files. So, and that's an issue CEOs have to deal with. Yes. Uh, but external support um, would be very, very important. And I must stress, you know, because we talked about all the stress factors in the five areas, mm-hmm. the CEO themselves get stressed, but yes. everybody is complaining they are stressed and they're not getting the support from the CEO. But the CEO is another human being who is being stressed in their day. So their emotional support uh, is important and mm-hmm. that has to be done externally. Wow. As you're talking about this job is not a one-person job, I was thinking of the Healing Solidarity Conference. There was a woman uh, who talked about she job shared her director role and they did a division of labor where she she was more focused on the internal aspects of how to implement the programs and the other person was more focused on the external aspects, including generating resources. So maybe that could be something to consider more as these organizations, it's, it's complicated, as you say, it has uh, pros and cons, but uh, at least you feel like there's someone else up here that's going through this with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I mean, when I talk to other, obviously, peers, they do have that problem. And, and I think that, you know, one way is just having one CEO or, or you can have two mm-hmm. CEOs, whatever you want to call them, uh, reporting to the CEO. Mm-hmm. And each of them um, is responsible for portfolio uh, of uh, certain areas. Mm-hmm. And that's very important because as CEOs, um, obviously, pre the pandemic, mm-hmm. we always travel as well to mm-hmm. network, to attend conferences, to attend uh, high level meetings. 
Yes. And in between, you're trying, uh, you are expected to respond to emails, uh, phone calls, <laughs> deal with um, issues. And imagine when you have time difference. Yeah. I mean, when I used to be in the USA or Mexico, um, wake up, I used to wake up at three o'clock in the morning because it is nine o'clock in the UK and I have to respond to certain things. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes I can't sleep because of the time yeah. difference and I'm only staying there for two, three days. Right. By the time you, your sleep is adjusted, you're back home again or you're in another part of the world. Uh, I mean, on one occasion, I was in Pakistan and within two, 24 hours, I was in the USA. Now the time difference is massive. And um, mm-hmm. but, and during this time, a lot of things can happen that you have to handle. Yes. Obviously you delegate your authority to your teams and other things, mm-hmm. but you remain the number one responsible of the operations. Yes. Now it's not far off, to be honest, if you want to give it a similarity like mm-hmm. a prime minister or a president of a country, yes. doesn't matter how many ministers or secretary of state you have, if there was a major issue in the country, everybody expects the prime minister or the president to be engaged and to respond to it, even though the details are worked out by the rest of the team. Yes. So, And this is exactly what happens when you're a CEO. People expect you to do something, to say something, to communicate with the staff and with your stakeholders. Okay, so we talked about taking care of yourself because you need to make sure you're okay to keep on uh, by taking breaks, having someone there, considering other options and modalities. Um, The second piece I wanted to tease out with you is this idea of taking care of your people that are working with you. And it sounds like you did that a lot when you'd have an emergency, you'd pick up the phone, call someone. In several of the interviews we did for Leading Well, this struggle struggle comes up, this balance. Um, for example, during COVID, we want to be cognizant of the difficulties our people are facing and still be present for affected populations we're serving. It's a constant struggle to be, stay and deliver, but also recognize that uh, one person said we have a at least one hand behind our back because during COVID there's only so much we can do given the circumstances there. Given your experience, are there other things that would be helpful to consider uh, when thinking about care for staff? Yeah, I think that's very important. Um, obviously, as I said, the larger the organization is, you're unable to reach out to every single one of the people who are affected. And especially with the pandemic, almost every single person is affected. And the way we did it was actually constant communications. Mm-hmm. Constant. I'm not sure if I mentioned to you or not, because we were one of the early organizations in 2020 mm-hmm. to actually ban international travel. And that was two weeks before the British government announced mm-hmm. the lockdown. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, 5th of March was, I think, if I remember well, was the last day anybody can travel or come back to the UK. After that, there was no international travel. We banned it. We canceled all our meetings. Mm-hmm. And that was about two weeks before the um, British government, I said, that announced the lockdown. In addition, we had almost weekly communications globally. What we were doing about the pandemic, what we had, um, by the time the lockdown came in, we had a financial resilience plan in place. And not only that, it was not confidential. We put it out. There was a pay freeze. There was a freeze on capital expenditure. Mm -hmm. There were changes of programs procurement and authority, you know, even stopping credit cards of staff, Mm -hmm. saying that the authority has to be done at a higher level Mm -hmm. because we don't know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And that was quite transparent. We said, look, these are the measures. 
and everybody had a copy on them. And then we and then we reviewed it within six months and we relaxed some of the measures because our financial performance was good. Mm-hmm. And we shared the same financial resilience plan and said these are the ones still applicable, and this one are no longer applicable. The restrictions have been lifted. On a continuous basis, we had regular communications. And the way we did it actually, I couldn't do it on my own. We had um, what you call a COVID-19 crisis management team in place mm-hmm. that was meeting every two weeks. And then we had uh, also an HR management team meeting every two weeks. HR were focusing the HR implications on any decisions we were taking at the crisis management team. Mm-hmm. And they were also focusing on the well-being. And I used to chair both meetings. So they were okay. bi-weekly. And it used to be like one week is HR, the following week is COVID-19. Uh, and then two weeks later is the board of directors meeting where all these decisions or recommendations come back to the board of directors. Some of them I could make decisions. Sometimes I have to take to the board Mm -hmm. of directors. So, and after every crisis management meeting, if there's anything new, Mm -hmm. there's a communication out the same day. Wow, wow, wow. That's great. People feel informed. Yeah, we did a survey and Mm -hmm. the majority of staff said we acted promptly. We were transparent Mm-hmm. And we communicated everything timely, and they were happy to see us. That uh, they were confident that they see us actually organized through, through the uh, the pandemic and the crisis. And financial wise, we did very well. I mean, the income of Islamic Relief increased by at least thirty percent. Wow, that's excellent! You yeah. mentioned your board, and you mentioned at the top of the interview that you're interested in governance. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we've seen in our research so far is that it's very helpful when the board is supporting the CEO to consider staff well-being and to support a culture. Not every board seems to have the same level of interest in that. Um, Some boards are more interested in revenue or in things like strategic positioning. Um, But what are your thoughts on how a board should get involved or not on the topics of staff well-being and culture? I mean, it's, let's take the example of the private sector where they use the, the olden days. The bottom line was about the profitability. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. now um, then obviously that is changing, you know. Um, and similarly with the NGO, it can't be all about the bottom line about revenues and how much income we have because we have to, we want to have a better impact on the people we serve. Mm-hmm. But the the people who are serving others, which is basically the CEO and his team or her team and the entire staffing, they also need to be looked after. So in terms of the indicators of the effectiveness of the organization cannot be only the revenues or the impact on the people we serve. Mm-hmm. We need to look at the middle part, which is our staff, the mm-hmm. people who are supporting us. Mm-hmm. And that's quite important because I once, I think, read the CEO of Tesco. He said, we were surprised that we knew a lot more about our customers mm-hmm. than we need about our staff now because the focus was how do we get more money from the customers you have the tesco club card you have this promotion you have that promotion yeah. you tag them you follow them you know their um, shopping habits their spending habits their income almost everything probably family size their holidays but how about those people who are getting the machine oiled and up and running every day 24 mm-hmm. hours a day and seven days a week, your mm-hmm. staff, they said they knew nothing about them or they knew, they knew very little. Oh. Now, I think that is a danger for 
board of trustees in, the, in any NGO to neglect that aspect of it. And we know they're just the greatest assets you have. You've got your donors, you need to look yeah. after them, whether institutions or individuals. Mm-hmm. You need to look the people, you need to look after the people you serve. But the middle part is mm-hmm. just as important. And you have to have certain indicators. And maybe there should be um, a champion, a well-being champion within the board mm-hmm. that is responsible yeah. uh, to look at this aspect. The same way we say, look, you need to have somebody with um, financial background and audit background to be the chair of the treasurer and the chair of the audit committee. But how about the well-being? Not everyone would be interested. Not everyone would have the understanding. So could we have somebody with HR, with emotional mm-hmm. support or with, with the leadership um, experience mm-hmm. who can be responsible for the well-being of the staff, uh, including the CEO? Yeah, I think it could be an interesting proxy indicator for boards to look at uh, what what, it, what is happening with staff and the engagement surveys, what's happening with absenteeism, turnover. Insurance companies are coming forward and saying, we're seeing high numbers of uh people dropping out through sick leave and, and it's a bit fishy, the patterns. Um, so it might be a sign that maybe the uh, organization is not going for it as effectively or efficiently as it could. Yeah. And, and, and I, have, I have seen situations where CEOs have done tremendously well when it comes to revenue increase and growth. Mm-hmm. But they were very bad at leadership and their well-being. Yeah. Uh, now, if that is not an indicator for the performance of the CEO or the mm-hmm. senior leadership team, right. it, it could be a danger. Yes. Uh, maybe without mentioning names where organizations uh, were promoting the well-being or the justice of others. Yes. And internally, they had issues where people committed suicides. Right. Now, that's an issue. Yeah. Yeah. So that's an issue. If I am promoting the rights of others, mm-hmm. okay, and the well-being of others and the people we serve, mm-hmm. but all of a sudden internally I have a lot of mental health issues, right. or some of them have committed suicide, mm-hmm. then you've got a problem. Yeah. You're trying to fix a problem outside your area when internally you have a problem. So you've got to look at both. Yes. So yeah. I think it can. I don't know. I haven't seen data that says one causes the other. Or there's correlation, but I, I, I have a hypothesis that uh, when internally you apply your values with yourself and others and your team, that reflects how you engage with people you serve. So the last thing I wanted to ask you before yeah. we close, we're really inspired by people like yourself who participated in the Leading Well project, which will be published soon. And we're inspired by people that have fed into different contextual conversations. And we want all of the ideas to be considered in a global gathering that will take place virtually on May 2021 this year. And we're going to frame the gathering as living our values, care, Mm -hmm. culture, and power and aid. Right. We'd like people to come from very different perspectives, from leadership perspectives, from ethics, from safeguarding, from well-being experts or staff care, to people looking at diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. Say, how can we together in solidarity look at some of these more system-wide issues and support each other through them? So the last thing just to say is, given where this conversation is going, are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave with us? I think I'm really pleased, first of all, to say that we have 
like ICVA or CHS and so on um, have this type of initiative. And uh, the most important thing, I think this has to be a continuous activity. It cannot be a one-off and it has to come out probably in a year or two years time, whenever the, uh, the sort of the project comes to an end um, is to have clear outcomes where um, NGOs adopt it and probably develop additional metrics or indicators for well-being of staff, of boards, of CEOs, and what are the best practices. And then most importantly is that obviously you can't carry on obviously doing the same project, but somehow these um, NGOs together mm-hmm. create some sort of a platform to work together to make sure mm-hmm. we don't have an oversight in two or three years' time when things go back to normal and we are mm-hmm. busy with our day-to-day life. And then we just forget about this until yes. somebody reminds us again. So how do we make sure mm-hmm. that uh, organizations continuously look uh, at the well-being of their staff and what are the new initiatives can have and what are the new challenges that they are facing? Um, sort of a platform between themselves. You know, I'm not looking for a huge, massive uh, sort of project mm-hmm. that keep even if it is on an annual conference or annual get together or a side event in one of the major events that have I mean, that focuses on this issue mm-hmm. so it is not forgotten exactly let's let's hope i let's think hope. culture change takes at least 10 years so yeah. let's hope we can keep this going exactly. and it's forgotten after everyone's vaccinated from covid um, so it's been a pleasure nasser haghamed thank you so much for your time uh, thank you so much for your contributions to the project, but also thank you for basically looking forward as a way to support other people who are in that role that can be very challenging. Um, so let's definitely keep the conversation going and wish you all the best. Thank you, Melissa. I wish you all the best with the project as well. You've been listening to Melissa Pitati in conversation with Nasser Haghamed, CEO of Absinia International Consulting LTD. This is Embodying Change, a podcast about cultivating care and compassion in aid and development. The show is edited by Ziada Abayid. A big thanks to the initiative supporters, the CHS Alliance members, the government of Luxembourg, the UK's Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, and the Netherlands, and for the Leading Well Project, ICFA. If you enjoyed the show, you can help us in three ways. First, please share it with your people. Second, you can leave us a review to help others find us. And third, you can make suggestions for a future episode by emailing us at compassionateorg at chsalliance.org. We're open to your feedback and we're on the lookout for examples of good practice in the sector. We'll be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, take care and be compassionate with yourself.